You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. If you would, take your Bibles with me, turn to the Gospel of John. Find ourselves in the Gospel of John, chapter 7. I hope that um, when you watch a video like that, you, you think, boy, it's a little, it's a little violent. It's a little bit, it's a little bit bloody. Um, you know, think about the fact that it's real. It's true. You know the. The fact that there's, there's people like this that will be beat up, left for dead, heal, and go back to a village to share the same gospel that got them beaten and almost killed in the first place. And there's people who go to a village and get beat up and never leave. They die. They, they say that uh, the early church would say that the, the seed of the church is the blood of the martyrs. In other words, if it wasn't for people like that, we wouldn't be here today. We wouldn't enjoy the freedom that we have. Therefore, we shouldn't squander it. John chapter 7, we're going to pick up in verse uh, 19. If you would, stand with me as we honor the reading of Scripture. Hath not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man whole, his man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with righteous judgment. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we ask that you would guide us. We ask that Jesus has been in Galilee after the events of chapter 6. Now, just so you are aware, Galilee is the, in the northern part of Israel. There was a, a middle then of Israel. That was uh, the land of Samaria. Galilee was north of that. Judea is in the south. And this is all important because Jesus is up teaching in, in Galilee all of this time, and it really wasn't a concern of the religious leaders in Judea who were out to get him. If you remember, 
After he did these things on the Sabbath, they sought to kill him. Of course, then we notice in chapter 6 that there's something interesting that happens. Jesus feeds the multitude. He has these multitudes, thousands and thousands of people who are following him. He's gathering this, this huge crowd. He tries to sneak away from them. They find him and they come and, and they're there. Then all of a sudden, within just a matter of hours, really, the tide turns and these followers are leaving him in droves. Now, the several months that separate chapters 6 and 7, we can only imagine that the ministry of Jesus in Galilee wasn't one of all of these big crowds anymore. I think that's the, the point really in, in chapter 6. There was a, a shift that was taking place. The public opinion of Jesus wasn't the same as it was at the beginning. So then we learn that Jesus goes back to Jerusalem which is in Judea for the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And we're told that he didn't go there publicly, but he went privately because the religious leaders were after him. In fact, when Jesus' brothers went, we know that the religious leaders were there looking for him as well. Jesus, he didn't go at the onset of the feast. At the beginning, he came in the middle and we should make it clear here at the onset that the religious leaders had not forgotten about the events from a year or so ago when Jesus violated their understanding of the Sabbath by healing a man that couldn't walk, by telling him that he needed to take up his bed on the Sabbath and go. So the, the question that really comes to our minds in this moment is, what does the law actually say about the Sabbath? If this is going to come up again and again, and it's a year or so later, and Jesus is bringing this whole issue of law and Sabbath up again, what does the law actually say? Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 10. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you will labor and do all of your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You, your son, or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. Now in the minds of the religious leaders, if Jesus did this on the Sabbath and he violated the law, then he was a dangerous man. He was a sinner, and he was giving license to other people to sin as well, and this could not be tolerated. <clears throat> At the time that Jesus healed this man, the religious leaders tried to take his life, but he escaped. But here, Jesus is back, and the religious leaders, they remember what comes out in our text is that the people, by and large, didn't see this, though. They questioned Jesus. Who, who wants you dead? You have a, a demon. But their religious leaders, though, these knew what he was talking about. Jesus was talking to them. It's kind of an interesting portion of Scripture because there are those here that act like Jesus is crazy when he says that they want him dead. They say, uh, you must have a demon. We don't want you dead. 
But what we realize is that it was the leaders that wanted him dead, and it's these who Jesus is speaking to. And when we recognize this, some of the awkwardness here disappears in the conversation. It's interesting that Jesus comes back to Jerusalem here, and then he brings up this issue. As if they didn't remember what Jesus had done. If they didn't remember what Jesus had done, they do now. And not only that, Jesus starts to talk about the law and the purpose of it specifically as it relates to the Sabbath. Let's look at the first statement here that Jesus makes in his argument concerning the law. In verse 19, he says, Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? The point here that Jesus is making is somewhat veiled, but once you see it pointed out, it becomes uh, rather clear. Jesus is saying here that those who trust in the law will be condemned by the law, and the reason for that is that nobody keeps the law perfectly. Think about this. The religious leaders made the law their standard of righteousness. And if that is the case, then the law would condemn. For if they would use the law here to show that Jesus is a sinner, Jesus is is in violation of the Sabbath, at the same time that they were showing Jesus to be a sinner by the law, the law would also condemn them because of their hatred and their murderous desires and their plans toward Jesus. You see, the law always condemns. Let me just pause here for a moment and say that this is the problem with legalism. Legalism has at its heart, its core, an unhealthy reliance on the law. Let me just give you the gotquestions.org definition of legalism. It is rather good. It says this, It is a term Christians use to describe a doctrinal position emphasizing a system of rules and regulation for the achieving of both salvation and spiritual growth. Legalists believe in and demand a strict, literal adherence to rules and regulations. Those who hold a legalistic position often fail to see the real purpose for the law, especially the purpose of the Old Testament law of Moses, which is to be our quote-unquote schoolmaster or tutor to bring us to Christ, according to Galatians 3.24. Now the end here in that definition is something we're going to get into in a few moments, but it is important to say right now the purpose at the onset of the law is to point us to Christ. The law itself, all of these rules and regulations, even the the rules that one would create around the biblical law, as the religious leaders in Jesus' day did, even these for them in order to bring salvation or to achieve spiritual growth, these always condemn. And Jesus is pointing this out. I want you to see, though, how legalism gets the heart, the cart before the horse. Legalism makes obedience to rules and regulations a condition of salvation or spiritual growth. Notice the or spiritual growth. John Piper, in a sermon several years ago, entitled, I think, The, the Purpose of the Law, 
He, there, there was a lot of things wrong in that sermon as it related to the purpose of the law. For instance, uh, he pretty much downplays or denies the first use of the law or the fact that the law is a schoolmaster given to point us to Christ. But what he does well in that sermon is to point out very strongly that obedience to the law comes through the heart of faith. The law, in other words, is given so those would respond in their faith through obedience. In other words, one must have faith, and then obedience is a product of that faith. Do you see how legalism gets the cart before the horse? It, it makes obedience a condition of spiritual growth. You might ask, well, what's, the, what's wrong with obedience being the basis of Christian growth? The problem is, and we have already pointed this out, that the law always condemns. It always condemns. I think of Paul in Romans chapter 7 where Paul says that he would never know what it means to covet if it wasn't the law saying to him, do not covet. The law points to him, it's sin, it, it defines it, it says this is here. And the more that Paul strove to be obedient to the law and not covenant, the more he recognized his own sinfulness. In other words, the law always does this. It always condemns. It always condemns. Just when we start thinking we get a handle on one thing, we recognize how, how much we fall short. A really good illustration of this comes from uh, the scriptures in the life of King David. David, if you remember, committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then to cover it up, he has her husband killed. Uh, a heinous crime. So after this, God sent to King David a, a prophet, and this prophet tells a, a story to the king. And in this story, he says there's a rich man and a poor man living in a certain city. The poor man had nothing except for a, a young lamb that he raised as a member of his own family. His children played with it. It, it ate from the table. It was like a daughter to him. The rich man, he had many sheep, many animals. And one day a, a traveler came to, to visit the rich man. And the rich man was, was unwilling to slaughter one of his own animals to feed the traveler. So he took the poor man's lamb and served it to the visitor. Of course, David hears this and he's steaming mad. And he says something like, as sure as the Lord lives, the man who did this ought to die. Nathan, the prophet of God, turns to him and says, but David, you are, you are that man. What does the law do? The law condemns. The law shows us that we have violated it. It shows us that there is never any hope. There's never any way of salvation in, in law keeping. There's never any growing in godliness by keeping the law. It brings nothing but despair. Of course, at this point, we need to say something about the nature of God's law. God's law demands perfection. The scriptures clearly say this in Galatians 3.10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under curse, for it is written, curse is everyone who does not abide by the things written in the book of the law and do them. I want you to hear me clearly when I say this. The problem is not God's law. God's law is perfect. The problem is you and I are not perfect. 
The problem is nobody keeps the law because nobody is perfect. This is why the law always condemns. The law is perfect. We are not. The, God, the law is God's perfect standard. So the first point here is, is very important, that anyone trusting in the law will be condemned by the law. Yes, salvation is to come. And when salvation comes, it comes from somewhere else, not the law. And I, and I hope you, you've seen something else as we've been talking about this, is that the, the legalist will condemn behavior in somebody else, but they'll excuse a certain behavior in their own life because they refuse to be condemned. David was this way, right? He, he somehow justified or excused or looked past his own sinfulness and wanted to demand justice in another account. David was a hypocrite. These think that they can obtain godliness or salvation through law-keeping, which is impossible. In other words, trusting in the law in any way makes one to be a hypocrite. You know, in our situation, here's these religious leaders that are condemning Christ for healing a man on the Sabbath, but at the same time, they're refusing to see themselves as really being no different. This is why Jesus says, why do you want to kill me? He's pointing to the fact that they have murder in their hearts. And of course, we know that God cares about the heart, not only outward actions, but even if God did only care about outward actions, we also know that the, the murderous intent of these people would come to fruition in just a few short matter of, just a short matter of time. But notice Jesus' argument here. It went, it went something like this. It was the law of the Old Testament that a male child should be circumcised on the eighth day after his birth. This is, this is, the, this is the law. So according to Leviticus chapter 12 and verse 3, we, we know this. So it makes sense that the eighth day would fall on the Sabbath from time to time. But it was the teaching of the rabbis that this could be and should be done on the Sabbath. It was not a, a violation of the law. Jesus said, on the other hand, you don't see what you're doing here. You say that you're fully observing the law that was given to you by Moses, including the laws of the Sabbath, but the laws about the Sabbath forbid, forbid, uh, forbid work. And you've interpreted that to mean the religious leaders, they've interpreted that to mean every kind of work except that which is absolutely necessary to save a life. So technically, according to the religious leaders' laws that exist around the laws, technically that would forbid circumcision on the Sabbath. Jesus is not saying that you shouldn't be circumcised on the Sabbath. He's saying, I mean, it's right to do so. But he's saying it's hypocritical for them to blame Jesus for healing a man, making his body whole on the Sabbath, and then actually saying it's okay, on the other hand, to mutilate it. It's kind of a complex argument, and he's dealing with a specific kind of issue, but it's still true for us that legalism gives birth to hypocrisy. That's the issue here. This is what Jesus is pointing out in the religious leaders. 
This is also the reason that the law cannot be the basis for one, one's relationship with God, either when it comes to salvation or when it comes to growing in godliness. So the question remains, why did God give us the law? If nobody can be saved by law keeping, and if we try to actually live that way, it makes one to be a hypocrite, then why did God give it in the first place? We've already said that God gave us the law, and the law condemns. It always condemns. So the question comes up in mind, does God take delight in the condemnation of humanity? Did God give it to us just because he likes to see us fall short? He likes to condemn people? The law does condemn. But the law was given to point men and women to Christ. The law was never given for the purpose of one to achieve salvation. The law was a standard given in order to convince men and women of their true hopeless condition so that they may turn from a life of their own effort in achieving salvation and come to God to find grace and mercy. The law of God, we need to understand, is like a mirror, which a lot of you used when you came in church this morning because of the wind. A mirror functions very simply. It shows you you. Dirt and grime and all of that. It shows it to you. If somebody says, hey, you have something stuck in your teeth, the easiest thing for you to do is go to a mirror and remedy the problem. We often go to a mirror before we leave the house. We check our hair. We make sure that there's not uh, toothpaste on our lip or the, the breakfast that didn't make it to our uh, mouth isn't on our shirt. Now when it comes, when one comes in the house after being outside, say, this person goes to the mirror and they check themselves and they notice that there's dirt all over their face. Their face is dirty. What do they need to do? They need to clean it. They need to wash their face. Now, it would be foolish to take the mirror off the wall and try to wash one's face with the mirror itself. This is how foolish it is for one to think that they can be made right in the sight of God by keeping the law. The purpose of the law isn't to keep it in order to be holy or right with God or to earn God's good pleasure in some way. How often have you heard somebody say something like, boy, when I die, I just hope I'm good enough. You know, you know that, that kind of thinking is, is anti-Christ. It's anti-Christian. The, the fact is, no person has ever been good enough. Some might say, well, what about the Old Testament? What about before Christ? Were there not people in the Old Testament under the impression that they were to be saved by obedience to the law? I would point out that at the same time God gave the law, he also gave instructions concerning sacrifices. At the same time, as one scholar put it, that God gave us Moses, he also gave us Aaron, who was the first high priest. Another scholar said it this way, it is at the same time that God declared, thou shalt not, that he also went on to say, but I know you will, and so this is the way you get out of it. The sacrifices in the Old Testament exist to point us to Christ. They point to Christ, but it is particularly clear that the sacrifices in the Old Testament 
point us to Christ on the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. The, the first sacrifice there was a goat that was driven away from the people and it was driven into the, the wilderness. The significance here is that the high priest would put his hands on the goat. This was a way of showing that he identified with that goat. And then he went on to confess that the people's sins. And it was this symbolic action where the, the sins of the people are being placed on the goat. Or to say it differently, they were imputed onto the goat who would carry their sins up far away into the wilderness, never to be seen again. The other sacrifice that was made in the, the courtyard of the temple... After the high priest would make a sacrifice for himself, he would take another goat. There it was slaughtered and his blood was taken into the Holy of Holies and it was placed on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant beneath the wings of the cherubim. Of course, this is symbolic too. The Ark contained the, the stone tablets of Moses, the ones that were broken. The space between the, the outstretched wings of the chairman represented the, the presence of God. So without the, the blood of the innocent substitute of the, the lamb, that the picture is one of, of stern judgment and condemnation. It was the blood that, that, that freed people from this. God looked down at the, the law that these people had broken. The broken law calls for death, but then the blood of the goat is placed there between God's presence and the law and God's wrath is averted. In other words, sin was dealt with. The sins were placed on the goat. They were sent into the wilderness and God's justice was satisfied in the death of another. Now, of course, this is all symbolic. It was a type pointing to the ultimate sacrifice of sin pointing to, to Christ as the perfect substitute who would take the place of sin for humanity, who would also satisfy the justice of God perfectly as he was both God and man. But just think about this for a moment. How much would those who were living in the Old Testament before Christ understand about this plan of salvation? How much would they, they grasp that, that Jesus would come and die for their sins? Certainly they didn't know his name. But there was a longing. Some understood quite a bit. Still others understood very little. The fact is, all of this, that these sacrifices were given to show the way of salvation that was to come. That people would see that the law was in no way given to earn salvation. The law was given to, to point them to somebody who would actually, could actually save them. This is Jesus Christ who bore your sin on his shoulders if you place your faith and trust in him. He's the one that, that carried your sins as far as the east is from the west. He accomplished perfectly what that goat symbolized. He's the one that intervened and satisfied the wrath of God by the shedding of his own blood. This is what we mean when we say that Jesus died for you, that his blood was shed for you. He died so that you might be made righteous, right in the sight of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Some of the, the greatest hymns that we sing are about this. 
What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, how precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let me just close by telling you the story of King of Scotland, Robert the Bruce, in the 12th century. He was being chased by English soldiers. They were chasing him. They were almost upon him. And, and he was realizing that he was at the risk of being caught. So he made his way through the, the thicket, through the, the thick forest, hoping to escape. Robert ran mile after mile, and he was telling himself that he had escaped the vengeance of King Edward. And then all of a sudden, he heard a sound that made his blood curl. The sound was of his own dogs, his own bloodhounds. And he knew that the, the English were fearing that they would lose track of him in the thick forest. So they put these dogs, his own bloodhounds that he had trained on his trail, these animals that were supposed to protect King Robert, but were used by the English to run him down. The king knew that all was lost for him unless he could somehow throw these dogs off his scent. The king was desperate. He was exhausted. He came to a, a mountain stream and he, and he dove into the stream and he allowed the stream to take him for a, a mile or two. Then he got out of the water on the other side, slid into the forest and hid and listened as the hounds came to the water and were unable to follow him any further. His scent was gone. He had escaped. I think the application here is pretty straightforward. The, the king's bloodhounds, like the, the law, are supposed to, to be good. They are good, but they, they serve to betray us and hurt us. The law always condemns. The more we trust in it, the more, it, the, the more we're condemned by it. The fact is, we are lost. It's all over unless we plunge ourselves into the, the stream and, and wash away the, the scent of sin forever. The bloodhounds, the law, the stream, it's Jesus. He's the only one that will wash away your sin He's the only one that will deal with it. In fact, he will take it upon himself. He will bear it for you so that you might be clean. And when I say clean, I don't just mean free from the weight of sin. I mean clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ himself. Your sin, his, his obedience, yours. That is the gospel. As we turn our attention to the Lord's table, I want to just highlight something here in our, in our text that we've dealt with and, and we've said it, but it needs to be made abundantly clear that the fact is our tendency is to put our hope and trust in something other than Christ. I, I want you to hear this very clearly. Many people, I, I fear, grow up in church and they're, they're trusting in all sorts of rules and regulations without even realizing it. For instance, just do a, a short experiment. Answer to yourself a, a simple question. It's the question that was popularized by uh, D. James Kennedy in, in the evangelism explosion of a, a few decades ago. 
If you die and you're standing at the gates of heaven and you're asked why you should be let in, what would your answer be? Think about it. When I was, a, when I was young, when I say young, I mean in high school, this question is why I kept holding off and didn't get baptized for a long time. All my friends would get baptized and they would, they would go through this and I wouldn't. It was because of a question like this. I, I didn't know what I would say. I would get there and I figured I would just be speechless. Whatever I would come up with, it didn't seem to pass muster. I used to, to pray that I wouldn't die until I had the answer, until I had it figured out. My answer, like so many in the church, started with, because I, because I, and I couldn't really get past that because nothing that would finish that sentence ever seemed to be adequate. Even if I finished that sentence by saying something that I knew to be true, something spiritual, something that was right in Sunday school, like, because I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, as soon as I would think that, I would think about my friends that were at, at school and, and how I was no better than they were. Why did I deserve to, to enter? But they didn't. Because I? Because I did something? That's law. It's essentially saying that I did something in some way to merit being let in. And they didn't. that it was something about me that deserved to go in. Why, why should I be let in? The answer? Because Jesus bore my sin. He bore my sin on the cross. He paid my penalty that I deserved. And his perfect obedience is imputed to me, and therefore I am right with God. Not because of anything that I have done, but because of what Jesus has done for me. My friend, we don't trust in ourselves in any way, shape, or form. We are saved by Christ, and we are saved by Him alone, because not one of us deserves it. There's no because I in any way. We are saved from first to last because of what He has done for us. And as we turn our attention to the Lord's table here, I want you to, to contemplate that truth. That, that we come here and we celebrate not something that, that we have done, not that we've placed our faith and trust in it, not something that we've done, but we celebrate and we contemplate what he has done for us. The Bible puts it this way, doesn't it? And when Jesus took the bread, this is my body. This was broken for you. This is the juice. This is the, the fruit of the vine. This is, this is my blood. It was poured out for you. This is the, the blood of the new covenant. The new covenant is not like the old covenant. The old covenant says, do this and live. The new covenant says, this is done for you in Christ. This is the blood of the new Christ, that it is finished in Christ. He accomplished all there is to accomplish. Our job is to see that, to recognize it, and to trust in what he has done for us. To trust in his work, not our own.
Let the law be a mirror that points out our sin, that highlights it, and then run to Christ. Run to Christ, find forgiveness, find mercy and grace in the time of need. Find that in Christ, your acceptance, who you are. Find that in Christ, not anything you can do. Find it in Him, and then come back in gratitude and joyfully be obedient to the law. Joyfully follow it. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and then I'd ask the the deacons to come up, and we'll um, we'll serve the the Lord's Supper. Okay, let's pray together. And as I do, deacons, would you would you come? Our heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and we thank you so much for the way that you love us. That while we were still sinners, that you died for us. At just the right time, you died for the ungodly, meaning that none of us is worthy. But yet, you saw. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.